Broadcasting live from the Wellness Wonderland, you're listening to the Wellness Wonderland Radio. I'm Katie, and each week I chat with the most inspirational people on the planet on how to stay inspired in all areas of life. As you listen, feel free to tweet at me, at Katie Dalebout, or use the hashtag Wellness Wonderland. I'd love to hear your aha moments. So grab your headphones and listen on the go, or cuddle up with a notebook as we dive in deep with authentic conversations right here in Wonderland. Welcome back, everyone. I am so thrilled about today's episode because world-renowned nutrition and personal development strategist and my guru of health, Daniel Vitalis, is in Wonderland. He is so cool, and if you want to fully thrive, or as we say here, live in your own version of the Wellness Wonderland, turn up the volume on today's podcast because Daniel Vitalis is going to give us a huge, mind-blowing paradigm shift. So you're going to love it. Daniel is an amazing, articulate speaker, and every time I hear him interview, He has literally blown my mind with so much information, but what I really love is that he does it in such a loving, non-judgmental way and can really speak to everybody regardless of where they are on their journey. So he's a trailblazer who is really shaping the face of health and wellness today, so I'm so honored and grateful to be talking with you, Daniel. Thank you so much for stopping by. Ah, well, it's really good to be here, and that's a lot uh, to live up to in that intro, so I'm going to do my very best, but let's go down the rabbit hole. Let's do it. Okay, so I guess I, like I said before, I have so much I want to ask you, but I really want to start at the very beginning and really zoom the lens back um, and get a sense of who you are, where you came from, and how you came to this work. Did you always grow up with a hunger for health and nutrition? I always grew up with a hunger for knowledge. I did not grow up in a world of health and nutrition at all. I'd say I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional situation. Um, But from the earliest memories I have, I really wanted to understand the world I was in. And I was always looking for the underlying base patterns. You know, my belief is like if we can, if we really want to develop ourselves and be completely developed individuals, we need to get data points on every important subject we can find. And so since I was really young, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't get into health and nutrition until I was about 15. Um, about age 15, 15, 16, I started to become more health sovereign. I was really sort of independent by that time in my life and living on my own. And that's when I started to have to actually feed myself. And I guess like anything I approach, it's the, the question was, well, if I'm going to feed myself, how do I do it well? How do I do it right? How do I do it the best way that I can do it? And that really sent me on a journey that has really um, enveloped so much of my life in the last few decades. Wow, yeah, it's funny um, when you said that, you know, when you were 15, you were on your own. It's really, we, you know, we hear about that kind of in our culture as like, you know, the, the freshman 15 of college, or it's really like people start to either think about this stuff or maybe they don't, but when it all kind of shifts when you start making the choices about what goes on your plate rather than a parent or someone that you're living with, when you really make that shift. So that's interesting. So bring us kind of up to the present then, where where you started um, on that health journey with um, food and nutrition to the concept of rewilding and your work now. Well, the fundamental error that I made uh, when I first started studying nutrition was I went out and I started asking the zookeepers how to take care of the human animal. 
Um, let me elaborate on what I mean yeah. by that. If, if we want to take care of a chimpanzee in a zoo, there'd be a couple different approaches we could take in figuring out how to set up the most optimal environment, the best diet, best lifestyle for that chimpanzee. Now, there's a clear metaphor here. I'm referring to us humans living in the human zoo that we call civilization. Mm-hmm. So if we wanted to take care of this chimpanzee, we could go to zookeepers everywhere and ask them how to best care for chimpanzees. Uh, or, or we could look at wild chimpanzees and see how they live. And then we could try to replicate that lifestyle for this captive chimpanzee. Now, the mistake that I made, the error, was I went around asking everybody who was into nutrition what I should do. And I just got different stories from everybody and eventually realized the people I was talking to didn't actually really know what they were talking about. And it really, I mean, it's funny to me now, but it took me years to understand that I could just observe how the people who are still wild in the world, the hunter-gatherer peoples of the world, are living and how they've always lived. And I could look at the archaeology and I could look at the paleo-nutrition studies that were available and we could actually see, right, we could look at the... uh, ethnobotanical reports from the early colonization. We can study these people, our ancestors, wild humans, the people who are to us what wolves are to dogs. We could look at them, figure out how they lived, and then we could extrapolate those principles and bring them into our modern lives. Now, that, like I said, that took me years to figure out. Uh, and now it's so obvious to me, it's so clear that um, the zookeepers, the, the, our doctors, our nutritionists, they don't actually have really any idea how we could best most optimally live. In fact, they're suffering from the same illnesses and ailments that we are. So, you know, it would make sense if we looked at our nutritionists and, and said, wow, now there are some people who are thriving. Right. But we don't see that. <laughs> yeah. And when we look at our doctors, we see people often sicker than us. It's, it's shocking. Right. So, so what, uh, you know, eventually I realized is that the model's got to be nature-based because we are a really ancient species. Our modern form is at least 200,000 years old and our protoforms go back millions of years and we lived all of those years in our wild natural environment and only recently made the changes we've made and the recent changes are uh, really well linked now. The links are really well established scientifically. Ever since we left our natural environment, our bodies began degenerating. It's almost as if we halted our evolutionary process and we started a degenerative process instead. And so my experience in my own body and in watching the people who've taken this idea of rewilding on too is that when we make these shifts and we start to bring the natural principles back into our lives, our bodies start to flourish. Mm, yes, they start to surf, surf thrival. <laughs> exactly. So we, we can – and so that is sort of the, the whole idea. The principle of my work is that, that people are basically just surviving. They're alive you know, they're, they're still breathing, but they're not thriving. Their, their health, you know, at large, the population at large is just ba- basically barely staying alive. And the, just enough to keep the workforce rolling, just enough to keep the machine of technology moving forward. But, um, but very few people are thriving. And so hence the name of my company, Sir Thrival, and this idea that we can move past survival into something that's really about thriving. Yeah, it's like my favorite word. <laughs> um, so, when you decided to shift your focus, and I, the zoo analogy is probably my favorite analogy in the world, but when you decided to shift your focus and make this into a career, no one else was really having this conversation. No one else was really thinking about this in the way that you were. So it was, it's very 
it makes sense that you didn't really have anyone to look to. You were looking to those nutritionists and those um, people who were coming at this from a very, very different approach. So when you started to learn and have this hunger for knowledge and decided to turn it into your career, and I know that's something that happened just very organically for you. And you've talked about, I've heard you talk before about just doing good work in the world and then knowing that there's a need for that and just sharing in a real authentic way. And then like, I think you've never even set out to necessarily do it on this platform, but what advice would you have um, for people who also have that hunger to share something that they feel is important? Um, And how would you suggest getting started in that? And how did you make that transition for yourself? Uh, (laughs) That's a really powerful question. Um, you know, a lot of people right now have a hunger in their heart to get out there and share and do this work because, you know, I, and I think that's an evolutionary thing. It's, it's adaptive. It's, it's when, when there's, you know, it's like this idea that if you have um, only one sex of frog in a frog population, some of the frogs will actually spontaneously shift sex in order to balance out the population again so they can begin procreating. It's like that. Hmm. It's like when, when the world gets in the situation where humans are on such a self-destructive path um, that we're, we're literally creating an extinction-level event on our own planet, um, all of a sudden people are born with this thing in their heart to get out there and make change, right? And so a lot of us feel that. And um, breaking through to that can be a little bit challenging, again, because we, we tend to want to follow, just like with nutrition, as I was mentioning before, we want to follow the other zookeepers, right? Like, we'll right. do what they did, follow their rules. And the thing is right now is the world is such a wild west this moment. There's this, you know, all of the old rules, they're all falling away. And there's, it's, it's a choose your own adventure story right now. Um, it's a created uh, from your uh, inner vision kind of world right now. It's a really positive way to put a spin on things. I like that. Well, it's our opportunity now. Right. Here's, here's the thing. If we want to actually get out there and do it, um, it's more than just putting a business plan together. It's um, some fundamental shifts in how we, um, we frame our own reality. So uh, what I would say is is this. The first and most important thing is that you tell the truth and that you connect with the truth at a level where you're actually willing to admit when you're wrong. Uh, that's something that can be really hard for people who want to be public figures mm-hmm. because um, they they tend to get a dogma going and then they tend to defend that dogma vehemently. And very few people will actually say, you know what, I was wrong about that. I want to change my perspective right. on that. So one of the things that's been a hallmark of my work is just saying, you know, this is where, where I'm at today. This is what I believe today. This is what's true for me today. But, but my message is an evolving, adapting, living thing. And I would um, never want to see it become a sort of cage of rules that I'd created around myself or for the people who follow that work. So I think that's really critical that we tell the truth. Um, and, and I think the really big one here is if you really want to get out there and you really want to do it, you got to shed the um, submissiveness of domestication. You have to shed the submissiveness of domestication. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, all of us were, were raised uh, like dogs in this world to be submissive to all of these perceived authority figures and authoritative structures um, such that we walk through the world with our heads down, kind of whimpering, not really connecting to our inner sense of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the thrust of my work uh, in the last couple of years has been around food, but underlying that's been the message of sovereignty. Um, underlying my message of nutrition and personal development has been this idea of, of, of shedding domestication. That's why I call the work rewilding. The idea isn't to become a wild animal. The idea is to reconnect with that inner sense of sovereignty. So 
we got to find and connect with our inner sense of value and we need to demonstrate that value to the world. So if you want to, I watch a lot of people who kind of want to do what I, what I've been doing. Um, and I see some people do it with success and I see some people really kind of fail miserably at it. And the people I see who can't really get it ahead, it's because people don't listen to them because they present with submissiveness. And um, I think really it's got to come from a deep sense of inner security and a deep sense of inner love and appreciation for yourself and a deep sense of sovereignty, a sovereignty so deep that when people hear you speak, they know you're connected to the truth. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just even hearing you speak now, you're so magnetizing and you just have such a knack for it. Is that something that came with practice or do you think you were born with <laughs> I was that? A, I was a really shy person uh, most no of my way. life. Yeah, really shy, really introverted, chubby little kid, always hiding out, never really having any friends and not knowing how to really get out and express myself. So um, so I'll say this to all the underdogs in the world, you know, um, we can we can actually develop charisma. We can actually develop that and it will not be forced or fake. It will be natural. It's in there. It's just been suppressed, right? So um, think about the kind of things we do to a dog to demonstrate to a dog that it doesn't have power over its own choices. Mm. Even to the point of, let's say, with certain species where we cut off parts of their body, right. like clipping their ears or cutting off parts of their tail. And then we look at what we do. For instance, let's talk about men in our culture, right? Most of the men born in our culture have part of their penis cut off at birth. Right. I mean, this is a, this is a docking this is a, a, a way of demonstrating um, that you don't have uh, free will, that you are submissive um, in your culture. Now, these kind of things that are, are done are, you know, we do similar things to women. For instance, we, you know, a woman is, by the time she's four years old, she's handed a bra and told she's going to wear it every moment of the rest of her, every waking moment the rest of her life. Right. right. It's like, and if she doesn't, she's some kind of like greaseball hippie, right? It's like right. we have all of these little things that we have to do. We feel like we have to do to impress the sort of invisible master. That people, Not, most people don't even realize, right? Never even thought of. Think, right. They think they want to do it. Well, that's right. the key of training a dog, right? The key of training a dog is making the dog want to behave uh, the way you want it to. And so, you know, we've all been trained like this through compulsory education by our incredibly, um, um, I want to say, I almost, it's like our medical system almost molests us um, from the earliest moments, right? From the moment that we're, bo- most of us, since we were born in hospitals, uh, we're first born to um, these white-coated sort of um, um, authoritative figures who manipulated and molested our bodies however they saw fit. And then as we aged, they began to drug us. Uh, and kind of experiment on us, right? And so we went through that and we went through compulsory education. A lot of us went out in the workforce where we learned how to bow to the hierarchy. Um, And over time, slowly, 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 the sort of inner fire gets turned down on people. So my experience and why, why, my, why is my focus so much on food and nutrition is because it's really, it's really about taking personal responsibility. So what happens is when we start to take control of what we eat and drink, suddenly we start to take responsibility for how we're built, how we're made, what we're made out of. The taking of personal responsibility in every category of one's life is the secret of redevelop- rewilding. It's the secret of rewilding. It's the secret of getting your sovereignty back. It's realizing, you know what? If this communication went bad, that's my fault. If I didn't get that job that I wanted, that's my fault. If I don't have the amount of money that I want to have, if I don't have the, the lifestyle that I want to have, if I don't have, haven't traveled where I want to go, I, that's me. 
not anybody else. Nobody did that to me. It's not my mom. It's not my dad. It's not my friends. It's not, oh, if I had a better community, it's me. And I got to take responsibility for that. If I do that, something shifts inside. We become sovereign because think about it. If it's somebody else's fault, then you've given your power to them. Mm. So if you're looking at your life and you see these areas where you want more uh, inner power, you got to take responsibility. And food's the big one because everybody sort of, <laughs> it's like they, they walk up to the sort of processed food trough and just sort of slobber away. And, and when you start to give people the permission to take control of their own food and their own water and their own, God, their own health, you know, and they reclaim yeah. that from the medical system and the, and the nutrition system and the, the agribusiness, suddenly they realize, whoa, I got way more power than I ever realized. That's what happened for me at least. And I've seen that with thousands of people now, thousands, literally thousands of people become like awakened individuals by first taking control of their food. Because once you take control of your food, all these other areas of your life start to click into play. Mm. I'm so excited to get into that and get into the food and the water with you. But just going off of these topics um, a little bit more with being a speaker. So with that shifting away from that submissive um, place, is that something that you would say people can kind of fake it till you make it? You know what I mean? Like really put yourself out there, even if it doesn't feel like you feel like you're pretending. I know I struggle with that sometimes. I, I am like, I'm doing this, I'm feeling this, but I feel like I'm pretending still. Is it, is that something <laughs> to kind of like push yourself through and, and, and that, vo- that voice there? in your head is not, is not going away. That voice in your head is there and it's useful to you actually in, in inner archetype that accuses you of being an imposter. And I think this is a valuable thing. I have that, and I'm sure that even those greatest, you know, greats in every area of performance in the world have that, right? So I know every time I, I come to an interview, every time I get on a stage, I'm nervous before, and I wonder, am I, am I fit to do this? What gives me the authority to talk about this, right? That's natural for us. Um, learning how to turn that voice down or to tell that voice not now is really crucial, um, but I want to add to that. It's not just fake it till you make it. Um, I think it's really crucial that we learn how, if we want to speak and share and teach, then we need to learn a little bit about how language works. And we need to look at things uh, like neurolinguistic programming, NLP, or things in that genre that teach us how to communicate more effectively mm-hmm. because words are magic. I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to say it. Words words spoken are spells mm, and sp- that's spells spoken <laughs> they manifest our reality i've got this quote i want to share from uh rudyard kipling he's the nobel prize winner in literature and he wrote the jungle book actually nice. um, and he says words are of course the most powerful drug used by mankind <gasps> words are of course chills. the most powerful drug used by mankind we when we speak it can be intoxicating. It can also be revolting. It's up to us. When we speak, we, we educate others on how to treat us, and we educate our subconscious on what to manifest for us. How we speak does that. So it's up to us every day, every moment, every word spoken, what we want to create. Are your words spoken, even the words spoken when you're with just one person, even the words spoken when you're just in the shower, are those words moving towards the manifestations you want or are they reinforcing your um, sense of submissiveness 
Um, so I would really encourage people to learn how to wield language. I think, in fact, it could be the most important thing you ever do, even more important than food. More important, you know, because I see a lot of people who change their diets, but they're so stuck in subconscious judgment that they are never really able to grow past that part. So, um, so it's about, you know, it's it's powerful what our minds can do, what our words can manifest. And remember, when you communicate, I think the other piece to say here is it's not just your words, right? That's 7% of perceived communication. So if you're listening to this right now and you're hearing my voice, you're hearing more from my voice than you are from the words that I speak. So if you tuned my words out, they're only 7% of what you're receiving. Wow. 7%, right? So in, in our overall face-to-face communications, when we're, when we're in front of somebody, it's 7% words, it's 55% body language, how we move. 55% of what you communicate, it's actually your body. And 38% is the intonation of your voice, your vocal tone. So those three things need to be congruent. The words, the tone, the body language. And that's crucial for speakers too. So that's why when you sit down and a speaker comes up and he starts to try to tell you how excited he is about yeah. uh, certain information, that you know it's not true. It's, you, you get more from his voice than his words. It doesn't matter what he says. So, so aligning our power is about aligning our words, our body language, our tonation, and we become sort of a powerful conduit for manifestation that way. Mm, this is awesome. I've never heard you speak about this topic, so it's it's really really cool. So, um, so speaking of this, with um, I would love to know your pre speech protocol. Like, what do you eat? What kind of things do you do? Um, just in your daily life to develop what is your craft? You know, for for you, this is your craft. This is your. Um, your voice is really the vehicle for allowing you to share this message. So I would love to know some medicinal, medicinal things that you do um, before getting on stage, any like pre-interview, pre-speech rituals, that kind of ways you talk to yourself. Or I would love to just kind of go deep there and, and know what you do. <laughs> wow, I've, n- I've never talked about that before. Um, I'm going to dig deep for this. Um, you know, one of the things about, I mean, and this is, I think, would be personal to anybody and how they approach it, but I know that I, I don't eat before I speak. Um, and so if I'm going to have a, a, a talk, let's say it's at 8 p.m., I have to be on a stage, I will probably won't eat after one in the afternoon max. I just, I just got to go in mm-hmm. with an empty stomach. It's really crucial to me. I got to hydrate like crazy. So I'll do like a lot of like lemonade type drinks because there's something about that sourness makes me feel really hydrated. And um, when, you're, when you're speaking and when you're using your voice like that, you, you lose a lot of moisture, right? So every breath, every time you, you uh, intone a word, you're losing moisture, right? If it was a cold room, you would see it all leaving like you'd see that vapor coming out of your mouth. It's, you know, it's happening all the time. And then a lot of times in a dry environment especially – so I got to stay really hydrated and I always make sure to bring drinks with me. So right now as we're having this conversation, um, I have a mason jar full of spring water, splash of apple cider, a lemon squeezed into it and some stevia. That's what I'm on right now. Um, and grabbing sips of that as we speak because um, I got to stay lubricated, if you will. Yeah. Um, another weird thing, <clears throat> this is, I don't know if just personal to me, but when I know I'm going to gonna do an interview for instance I, I don't i gotta unplug every device that could make any noise i gotta like block everybody out and i need to be alone for at least 15 or 20 minutes before i i start 
that's at least my preferred thing. So I don't like to be in a conversation, looking at anything, doing anything, reading anything just before I go in, unless it's notes. Um, and I just want to say, you know, it's, it's not, um, like it's always only easy. So like I said, I get that voice in my head that tells me, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't deserve to do this. How, how, you know, how, who am I to do this? That saboteur voice, that one that wants to back out right at the last second, that's there, you know, and often it convinces me that there's going to be astrophysicists in the audience who are going to call me out on a mistake I make in, you know, some kind of science bit, or there's going to be a biologist there who's going to call me out and tell me I'm wrong. I don't know. I have all these like little subconscious fears. Uh, and then what happens? So, so that all leads up, but here's the key. Here's the, the actually, the, I think the linchpin of this whole thing. As soon as I start, if I open the right place in my heart and I know that it's not me, but it's a channel, as soon as I start speaking, the truth just will pour through mm-hmm. and then I don't have to do any work. And if you're having to do a lot of work, then, then it's time to make more space inside yourself because um, it shouldn't be work. It should actually be uh, a message. Uh, it's like a current that you're connected mm-hmm. to and you open your mouth and the words come out. And often I listen to myself talk and think, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. I, I can relate to that completely. You know, I, I teach yoga and, and do a little bit of workshops and speaking and I'll, I'll listen to myself I, I, if I record it and I'll be like, where did that come from? It's just some, you're something else is speaking through me, you know, and that's when you get on that roll and you feel like you're in the flow of things, it's just, there's nothing like it. It's a high. And that's the thing that, you know, we're here to do. So whether that, for me, that is doing what I'm doing right at this moment. Uh, but I know that's only some people. And so everybody's got that thing right. where they get into their groove, right? And where the thing ceases to be, where, where there's a, a sense of timelessness, where what you're doing, you could do forever, it feels like. And, you know, you, where it just, you're so in your rhythm, your flow, connected to your current and that's where the real magical work comes through us. So another piece is making sure that we don't try to align ourselves with a career that actually we're not aligned with. Yes. So again, I, I, I watched, I remember when I first started speaking, um, like at any moment in history, there was a whole crop of us, right? A whole generation of us who started out doing this at the same time, uh, a bunch of my colleagues. And I, you know, I've watched some of them sort of slip out because it wasn't really their calling. And some have gone on and done really good work and because it was their calling. So, you know, it's interesting to watch and, and see, like, when somebody's really authentically aligned with their soul's purpose and mission. Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, for a lot of people listening, it may not be speaking. Everybody's got their thing. And, and I think if you admire someone, this is something that really helped me. If you admire someone doing what you want to be doing or in the, and I'll use you as an example, Daniel, like I admire him so much. And what I learned was that any light that I see in him is means that it's in me somewhere. And it, the things that you admire and whoever you admire means that they're, they may be unawakened in you. So that was just a really great concept that I liked. I agree. And, you know, sometimes it's easy if we really want something to feel almost jealous of somebody we see who's doing it. Mm -hmm. And that's a really great opportunity. I know when I see that happening for me, it's a really great opportunity for me to recognize, oh, that's just because I want to, that's where I want to be. Yep. Right. And to allow myself to feel really um, celebratory for that person's success. That's a really crucial piece of um, 
I think of my own personal success is is being able to celebrate somebody else's success and knowing that I am right on the place yes. in the path where I deserve to be right now. This yeah. is where I deserve to be. And if I want to be doing something bigger, and believe me, there's lots of bigger things I want to be doing, lots. <laughs> but in order to get there, I have to actually be ready for that. And that means I've got to keep doing my personal work. And so as I do my personal work, as each of, uh, each of the people listening does, you know, as you do your personal work, the universe gives you that next piece that you're now ready for, that you're now ready for. Yeah, and it's really shifting that jealousy to looking at them as a positive example is really, really crucial. And then also seeing, you know, if you're even noticing it, it means you probably have it in you. And just using that as getting out of that lack mentality that, like, if they're doing it, there's not enough for me. There's enough to go around. The fact that they're doing it means that it can be done and really just focusing on that. So I love that. Oh, that's a really great point as well because often this, a little scarcity can come up like mm-hmm. thinking, oh, oh no, they're already doing it. I know I, I felt that a lot with my own work. As you mentioned, when I started sharing my message of rewilding, for whatever strange reason, it wasn't being talked about very much yet. And when you start talking about something, inevitably lots of other people start talking about it. And then there can be this sense of, oh, no, I'm losing control of it. Ah, And, and it's always good to re- – you know, it's the same if you start a business and it's innovative. People copy it. Um, and it it's, can take a little while sometimes to understand that this is a good thing. It's furthering your mission. It's actually furthering your mission. Yeah, like that was what you wanted, you know. So mm-hmm. That's yeah. awesome. Okay, so we have talked about – how you're sharing this message in, in such a beautiful way. But now everybody who maybe is new to you is probably like, what? This, she loves this guy. He's so great. What does he talk about? So I, I want to get into the concepts with you. So um, I think the best spot to start, and I think you'd probably agree, would be water. So can we start by discussing water for survival and I absolutely love your aquarium analogy, and I think that could be a really great spot to jump into the water conversation a little bit. Yeah, well, water has been a really, well, you know, water is a pretty crucial piece for all of us, right? I mean, we live on this blue planet. It's why we're living at all. And um, we are basically essentially composed of water, or at least we're like a sack of water. So I use this analogy that we're like an aquarium uh, because an aquarium is an ecosystem, um, and I like to think in the, those terms because we too are ecosystems, right? So um, all this wonderful research has emerged on our microbiome terrain, and what's been revealed is that human beings are far more other organisms than they are human beings. So this is um, gives us more perspective. Oh, we're not just human cells; we're ten times more bacteria, fungi, and viruses than we are human cells. So only a tenth of us is actually human genetic material. The rest of us is all these other critters. And we're all living together symbiotically. So we are like an aquarium, right? Instead of a glass container, we we have a skin container, so a lipid-based container. Um, But just like an aquarium or any other ecosystem, we need the same things. Um, We need the same inputs. So if you think about what you need to run an aquarium, you need essentially, you need a light, a full-spectrum light. You need a bubbler, you need to add food, and you need to add water. That's what keeps an aquarium going so the fishies inside can keep on living. I like to break those things into the four elements. This is what our ancestors told us about. They told us about earth. They told us about water. They told us about air. And they told us about fire. In fact, your, your ancient brain already has little files called that. It's already set up. It's in your cognition already. So, so if you think about the fish tank, we need to add earth. That's the fish flakes, the food that we add in. 
We need to add water. That's the element of water. We need to add fresh air. That's what that bubbler does on the tank. And we need to add fire. That's the light. We use the light on a fish tank instead of the actual natural sunlight. Well, human beings, we need the same stuff. We need all four elements. We need food, water. We need to breathe air. We need sunlight. That's what sustains us. Um, however, one of the ones we've really not put a lot of energy to looking at in the world of nutrition is water. People have focused a lot on food. Um, and I'll often bring, use this analogy to illustrate um, how kind of silly this approach is because if you think about the fish tank, think about your aquarium. In the aquarium, again, that's you. What's more important in the aquarium, the quality of the water or the quality of the fish food? In other words, if we use, say, tap water – uh, from a city that's got toilet paper residue and birth control residue and pharmaceutical antibiotic residue and it's chlorinated and it's fluoridated and it's, we let it get dirty. Um, and then we put really, really good fish food in. How healthy will the fish be? And so that's like us. If we feed ourselves only the best food but the water we're drinking, let's say every day our water's coming out of a, a f- uh, plastic bottles that are leaching uh, petrochemicals that are endocrine disruptors into that water because that water is a solvent. And then we drink that and that water becomes our blood and that water becomes our lymph and that water becomes the fluid in our eyes and that water becomes the fluid in the meninges of our central nervous system, you know, becoming our cerebral spinal fluid. When we're made out of this dirty BPA-laden water, how effective is really, really good food at that point? So, Or how much more effective would our approach be if we drank really, really good water. So I've had a tremendous focus on water and really trying to dial in what's the best water because I think at first when we approach this, it's like, well, what's the best filter? Should I drink bottled water? Should I drink the tap water? Like what's the best approach? And what I uncovered really surprised me, but it's this sort of amazing fact. Uh, Nature has a lot of clean water still, which it stores in underground aquifers. And this water bubbles to the surface at areas that we call springs. These are places where underground water um, naturally brings itself to the surface. When it comes to the surface, that water, which has been underground for thousands of years most, o- most often, um, that water is, get this, the cleanest substance you'll ever encounter the cleanest substance you'll ever encounter. It's important to know that human beings have detonated over 2,000 nuclear weapons on the planet's surface and in the skies. So we've contaminated the entire globe with radioactive um, nucleotides. We have um, released uh, petrochemicals into the environment that are found now everywhere, including the body fat of Arctic animals. I mean, this stuff is everywhere, these PCBs. Uh, We find this stuff everywhere. The surface of the earth is basically covered in a fine layer of human pollutants. But the water that's deep, deep underneath the surface in these aquifers, when it comes up at the springs, is still pristine because it was essentially bottled under the earth before human pollution began. This means that we can approach one of these springs and gather that water together and we can drink it and we can build 70% of our body out of the cleanest substance that's left uh, that we have access to. In other words, you could be 70% pure by drinking water from a spring. And so I made it a mission to create a website called findaspring.com, which is a database of springs um, built by people like you who are listening, by the users who find these springs and post them. And these are almost always springs you could drive a vehicle right up to, get out with a bottle, fill it up, 
bring it home and start drinking this really, really perfect substance. And um, quite an easy thing to do. And a, quite a huge community of people are doing that now. Um, and so that's been my approach to water. A little strange, a little bit different than what most people are thinking about, but actually pretty realistic for most everybody I've ever met. Mm, awesome. And, and one of we'll obviously post the link of Find a Spring below and all of Daniel's links, but it's amazing. And one of my favorite things that I heard you say is it can really be like a, you can make it fun and you can make it like an Indiana Jones adventure to go find your <laughs> nearest spring and find your water and, and it can be really awesome. So I guess before we move on and shift from this water conversation, because we could do a podcast completely devoted to that easily, but... Um, I want to go just a little bit deeper to people who are listening that this concept may be new. Um, so, so educate us. What is the difference between like that spring water sold in the store at like Whole Foods? It says spring water on it. Um, is that from a local spring or, and how can it say spring water on that? And there's so many other water alternatives like alkaline water. Could you talk a kind of a little bit about what's out there and how to discern when you're getting your water? Well, I think the first thing we need to make a distinction about is the, the subtle difference between water and H2O. So when I was growing up, you know, I was taught that water was H2O, um, Water, however, though, as we usually mean it, water as it occurs um, on planet Earth is never pure H2O. It's H2O, uh, which is a solvent um, with many solutes dissolved into it. So if we find naturally occurring water, we'll find it containing, let's say, magnesium ions and calcium ions and sodium ions and potassium ions and fluoride ions. And I could go on all day. There's all of these minerals that have been dissolved in. Additionally, if this is naturally occurring water, it may have fulvic acid and humic acids from the breakdown of the forest around it or things like that. There's all kinds of substances dissolved into the water. Now, um, additionally, there'll be living organisms in that water as well, um, ideally probiotic organisms, particularly microalgae, but also other bacteria. Human beings have been drinking water like that for our entire history, which means our bodies are extremely adapted to that. Now, it wasn't until uh, the last couple centuries that human beings really started to play with distillation. Um, that started in the alchemical sciences and people learned how to distill water. Now, when you distill water, essentially you boil it and the vapor leaves and you collect that and that's pure H2O and all the minerals are left behind because they don't volatilize. So you end up distilling away pure H2O. This is a pharmaceutical grade water or a laboratory grade water. Um, this is the equivalent, you know, distilled water. H2O is to naturally occurring water what no-dose pills are to coffee beans, right? It's what cocaine is to coca leaves. It's a purified drug-like substance that's been refined or processed out of the natural thing. Um, when we make that water, we create an aggressive solvent which damages our body. So H2O actually ha does damage to our blood vessels um, and it leaches minerals from our body, which we then urinate out. So we have a net mineral loss that happens. Additionally, all the organisms have been taken out, which were naturally occurring. And we now know that those organisms that are naturally occurring in water actually are really important to our endocrine function. They help us produce neurotransmitters uh, like serotonin. Um, and its exposure to those organisms are part of our... Um, 
our natural uh, neurochemistry or, or help to engender our natural neurochemistry. Um, so those kind of waters, those pharmaceutical grade waters, were never really considered to be fit for human consumption. They were lab waters and they would be used in industry as time went on. But they were never considered like a, a something you'd drink until people really started to want to filter water. And then distilled water became this one approach. <clears throat> Later, a mechanical distillation method was developed. We call that reverse osmosis. It does a similar thing. It yields a similar water. However, it was it was done in a different way. It's done through a mechanical means rather than through a, a thermal means. And so we end up with this RO water, which is um, what a lot of the waters are that we get in, um, let's say, a Dasani-type water, like a, a Coca-Cola or Nestle-grade water in a bottle. That's actually tap water that's been put through reverse osmosis. Now, Reverse osmosis water doesn't taste good, neither does distilled water. Both have a, a, a non-hydrating, non-wet feel in the mouth. It's hard to describe that, but it's not satisfying organoleptically. It's, uh, the taste profile and the mouth feel is weird. So what they'll do then is try to add minerals back in. However, they can't really recreate natural water. There's things that are lost, like those organisms and like what we're just learning about, the underlying structure of water. Um, a less power, and a lot of people are using RO filters at home or um, buying reverse osmosis filtered water. Um, the next thing I, from that would be, um, you know, like you said, a, 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 bo- a bottled water that says spring water on it. Now, here's the thing about those. When you get a bottled water that says spring water on it, know that the industry has lobbied for uh, changes in the definition of a spring. So they're able to call their wells springs in almost every, almost every, with so few exceptions, bottled water that says spring water is actually a well water. Uh, What they're doing is they're drilling out what's called a borehole, and then they're pumping water out of these aquifers. That water then goes through submicron filtration, ultraviolet light radiation, sometimes through ozonation, then it's bottled. So what you end up with is a sterilized, pasteurized, filtered version of the spring water. So again, it's yielded sterile. It's changed. Naturally occurring water, if we gather water from spring and we leave it in sunlight for very long, it will actually turn green because the algae that are microalgae that are present in there will begin to photosynthesize. And they'll actually start to basically blossom and come to life because that's a living water. Bottled water has to be sterilized because otherwise it will turn green on the shelves. And in order to prevent that, they sterilize or pasteurize it essentially. So what's happening is people are drinking a dead water, a dead water, uh, whereas natural humans for our entire history have drank a kind of living water that contained a natural profile of minerals and a natural sort of fingerprint of microbiota. And with all that removed, that sterile water, uh, my belief is does not hydrate us as well, um, can do damage internally to us, does not function as a good conduit for consciousness I know I don't have a medical study I can show to explain that deeply, but that's my experience, is that there's an almost spiritual quality to naturally occurring living waters when we gather them from an ecosystem. Uh, And the other thing is is that once these waters are bottled, um, in addition to their sterilization, is they immediately start to eat away at the plastic that they're in. And that's brought into the water, and then that's brought into our bloodstream when we drink it. And we know now that those chemicals are uh, strong endocrine disruptors. Um, And they're causing not just problems in our own bodies, but they cause problems in our children as well when they're born, um, particularly with sexual function and dysfunction. So we need to be really cautious about consuming plastics. And because plastic photodegrades, 
Um, water that's in a plastic bottle that's exposed to light um, breaks down even faster. So uh, I just don't see a lot of really great alternatives. I know one other thing I'll mention is that people use Brita or Pure filters, these carbon block filters, um, which can improve the taste of water, tap water, but they don't actually remove very much of anything. So the fluoride still comes through, much of the chlorine still comes through. If that water supply is contaminated with antibiotics, birth control, or other pharmaceuticals, those come through. Um, and, you know, I think people need to know about their tap water is that this stuff is being treated with at least, usually at least four chemicals, being treated with chlorine, an antibiotic, being treated with fluoride, a neurotoxin that destroys willpower and creates submissiveness in people, uh, treated with uh, sodium hydroxide as an alkali and phosphoric acid as an acid. And uh, additionally, some cities, you'll see contaminants that come from people's urine and feces because the toilet water gets recycled back into the drinking supply. So we'll see things like birth control. We'll see things like pharmaceuticals showing up in people's water supply. So ultimately, it's your fish tank, you know, and you've got to decide what kind of water you want to put in it. Mm, Okay. So we went really deep there, which I'm so glad. And I just don't want people, because, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, my gosh, I'm so scared. Like, what if I ever am in a situation, I don't have my spring water, whatever. Like, I want to just be clear, too, that it's like, you know, it's all a spectrum, and you've got to just really, you know, think about it in terms of you just do what you can. And definitely now you have this information, now you can go out there, and Daniel has made this amazing website to make it possible for you but don't be scared don't be overwhelmed like it's okay that you maybe you've drinking Brita water your whole life like it's gonna be okay and <laughs> it's gonna be totally okay. i mean obviously we, we we're all like you look around and you see that people live and 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 survive this way so it's not as if um you know we're gonna start dropping off because we're drinking tap water you can live a long life on tap water it's just not an ideal source in the same way that people can live a long life on processed food, right? We could eat Wonder Bread every day. I know people who are adults that have lived out their whole lives living like this and they go on and they lead fairly normal lives. However, what we find is if we start to shift their food towards higher quality whole foods, that they start to be, they become more alive, Thrive. Right, they they start to thrive. They start to glow. Their hair becomes more lustrous. Their skin begins to glow. Their eyes begin to shine, and they come alive and they become awake. And I've seen the same thing happen with water time and time again. Now, um, I know what it's like to be without my spring water. You know, I know what it's like to be in an airport for you know twenty four hours and and have to buy bottled waters. And we do we just do the best that we can with what we have and what opportunities we have. But when we have the opportunity, it's so great to get ourselves really good water. And one of the one of the little games I'll play with people. I'll say, you know what, only do it one time. So get a five-gallon bottle, like one of those ones you'd see on a water fountain. Find a spring on the website. Might take you, let's say it's real far, like it takes you three hours to get there. So it's okay, you only have to do this one time. You drive out there one day, you fill that five-gallon bottle up, you bring that home, and you you decide that you're going to drink that whole five-gallon that week. It's like you're doing a massive oil change in your car, some kind of big flush. You're basically going to clean out your body and flush it out. You're going to basically drain the aquarium and fill it with clean water. And you know what? You don't have to you know, do that for the rest of your life. You could do it one time, and just that one time is going to make a really big, profound effect. I think if you do that, you're going to want to keep doing it. That's my opinion. Don't tell them that. <laughs> Game won't work. Um, no, I, I'm, I really, really, really appreciate you 
giving that oil change analogy and then all, you're just full of great analogies, but, um, <laughs> but then also saying that and getting really honest and authentic with us about, you know, you've been in an airport, like Daniel Vitella says, even like, you know what I mean? Like, it's really great for people to hear that and not be so hard on themselves and scared because that's toxic for your body too. You know, those more, those more really toxic, exactly, exactly, more toxic, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so we do, we do the best with what we can. Here's another thing. If you, if you have reverse osmosis water and, and uh, some people I talk to, that's basically the only water source they really have access to. Um, what I like about reverse osmosis in its positive sense, there's a lot of things I don't like about it, but there's some positives. And one is that it really does take out things like fluoride. If the filters are in good shape, they'll take that out. Um, so let's say you're starting with tap water and you've got to do reverse osmosis water. The problem is you yield a water so low in minerals that it becomes a kind of a dangerous solvent. So we can sort of repair that. Here's how we do it. We get ourselves what's called a TDS meter. This is a really inexpensive little device. Carry them at surfrival.com. the link below. Great. I mean, you can get one of these for about 25 bucks. And what it does is it reads the amount of mineralogy or minerality in water. So you stick these two little electrodes in there and you get a little digital reading. Let's say on your reverse osmosis water, the reading is 10 parts per million. That means of all that water, if we broke that water into a million little parts, 10 parts are minerals. The rest is pure water, H2O. Um, We need to bring that up a little bit. So what we can do is we can get ourselves a high-quality sea salt or high-quality land salt. An example of a good sea salt would be like a Celtic sea salt. A good land salt might be something like a Himalayan pink salt. Uh, And we start to add that into the water, very small amounts, and we stir it and we stir it and we stir it in a vortex until we get that water to about, let's say, 100 parts per million. It's a good place to start. Then we let that water get real cold, so we put it in the fridge. We let it cool down, cool down. Once that water's cold and you've brought the minerals up to about 100 parts per million, you've sort of recreated something like a spring water. It's not ever going to be that sort of natural living water, but um, it'll sort of revitalize it. You'll find it a lot more hydrating. So if you're in a place, let's say you're living in Tucson, it's really difficult to get you know, a spring around there. You're in the desert. You're in Vegas. Um, this would be a great way to treat the water that you're drinking, and you'll find it'll make you feel a lot more hydrated to feel a lot better. Mm, so good. I'm so glad that we went into all of that. I feel like we really gave everybody a good um, start with this water conversation. So now I want to switch gears to food. And I'm getting like the time is just flying, but I'm loving it. So switching gears to food when talking about rewilding. Um, if you were going to coach someone who was just getting started um, in this and maybe they have been coming from either the standard American diet or maybe a vegan diet or just just wanting to transition in, in some of these concepts into their lives, how would you advise them to get started? Well, I, <clears throat> I kind of want to give a little preface here, which is to say um, when it comes to – there's such a preponderance right now of, of raw food diets and of vegan diets. And so I just want to touch on that for a second because mm-hmm. I have a background in both of those uh, diets. In fact, I did those diets for a very long time. Um, often a lot longer than people who, who I talk to about this. And so I, I do have a, a good amount of experience with those. And I think it's helpful to know one of the things that I uncovered, you know, because that was sort of me listening to the zookeepers, people telling me that was the diet that I should do. And I did them. And I did them well. And I, I put a lot of energy into them. And only later did I discover that historically – there is no precedent for raw food humans or for vegan humans. In other words, that's never existed until this era. Um, human beings never learned to cook food, um, even 
you know, the first human beings cooked because they learned it from the species before us. So actually cooking goes back a few species. So human beings are actually a fire adapted organism. Uh, we are a cooked food adapted organism. In other words, if we eat only raw food, our bodies can't necessarily extrapolate all the nutrition that we need. So that's a very delicate dance doing long-term raw food diets. There's a ton of benefit to that, but it's a long-term, maybe not the best choice for most people. Um, and similarly, veganism is also something that's never existed in humans. Uh, we have a tremendous 3.6 million years ago, we were breaking bones open for marrow uh, in our protoforms. And so we see that those diets are are fairly new and very experimental. So I just want to give that word of caution, and I say that as somebody who not not just intellectually, but as somebody with experience with it. Um, okay, so that said, <clears throat> let's say somebody's starting off. Well, let's talk about the bookends of the spectrum. The spectrum is, let's say, completely processed food slop, sort of, you know, elementary school cafeteria prison food <laughs> um, on one end. And let's say the other end is the hunter-gatherer person who scarcely exists on the planet today, but a person whose food comes 100% from wild nature. Let's say that's the other extreme. Um, that would be like sort of the most optimal diet for our evolutionary history. And the least optimal diet for us would be a completely processed food prison diet, right? Um, those would be our extremes. Now, we're all somewhere on that spectrum. Most of us are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. But my recommendation people is, to people is to move from wherever you are always toward that ideal diet, always toward it, not with a sense of guilt or shame or I should be or I wish I was or any of that. We just point the ship in that direction, if that makes sense. Um, great analogy. I just love this analogy. It's like if you're driving in a car toward Canada and your goal is to get to Mexico, no amount of slowing down will ever get you to Mexico, right? Mm. You could be, if you realize you're headed to Canada and you go, oh my God, I got to slow this thing down. No matter what, you're still headed towards Canada. You actually have to turn around. So wherever you are on the spectrum, <clears throat> it's really crucial you point yourself in the direction you actually would like to go. So that movement might look like from processed food to more whole foods till eventually getting to a totally whole food diet to eventually getting to a totally organic diet from an organic diet, we want to get towards a more locally produced diet. And that means connecting in with our farmer's market and local food producers. And um, that local diet will actually shift us really quickly onto a mostly heirloom food diet, which means the varieties of foods we're eating start to change. We go from those supermarket shelf varieties to all of the really unique, nutrient-dense varieties that our local producers are growing. And once we really anchor that in, we can really start to get into maybe producing our own food, growing our own heirloom food at home, and, and then even maybe connecting in with wild foraging of foods, which is one of the most rewarding things that people can get involved in. And that might look like um, taking some herb walks to learn medicinal plants in your area or taking some wild food walks to learn a little bit about foods that you can actually gather wild from your ecosystem. It might mean taking uh, some learning how to do some light hunting or some trapping so that you can actually gather food from your environment. And people are wondering, why would you ever want to do that? Here's what's neat. Wild food, which is food that human beings are not growing, are very different than the foods that we are growing, the domesticated food. It's important to know we've only been growing food for 6,000 years. 
six wow. to 10,000 years. That's all. We, we as in our modern form, are two, at least 200,000 years old. That means if we went back 200,000 years and we grabbed a person, they would be identical to us today. They would be more fit. They would look like a really amazing athlete, but they would be identical to us in every other way. You put them in our clothes, they're us. Bring them to our schools, they're us. They're, they're, they're the same. For, for 190,000 years, they live as wild organisms, and then 10,000 years ago, they start planting wheat and become heavily addicted to that. And that sets a cascade of events in motion that leads to city-states. And that's where we are today. And it's a degenerative process that's actually unfolded. Call it domestication. So prior to that, all foods eaten were either gathered or hunted. And the thing about gathered plants, as an example, would be that the plant foods in nature are very medicine-rich. Now, they produce medicines that are bioactive for us, but often those medicines that are in the plants are actually protective to the plant. It's like the immune system of the plant. Sometimes, and very often, wild plants have flavors that are very pungent or bitter to us. And those bitter, pungent flavors do a couple of things. They keep that plant from being overeaten by other creatures, and they function as medicines in the, in the bodies of those creatures that do eat them. Now, what you notice about wild plants is they don't require human intervention in order to keep them alive. So dandelions, if you have dandelions in your yard, they just grow in your yard. You don't, you don't have to take care of them. You don't have to preen them or water them or fluff them up. They just grow. In fact, they'll grow and spread and take over any area that they can. Whereas the plants we grow in our gardens cannot grow without us. In fact, if we stop preening them and fluffing them and protecting them and fencing them and spraying stuff around them, they actually get destroyed because nature weeds them out. They're not natural organisms. They're not fit to live in the natural environment. And we've bred away most of those strong flavors. By breeding those strong flavors away, we've taken away the plant's immunity and that's why the plant can't survive on its own. This is why lettuces don't leave your garden and take over your lawn. They, they simply can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but additionally, by breeding those things out, we've bred out all of the medicine of our food. And so what, what's basically happened is human beings who are adapted to consuming uh, a, an enormous suite of plant medicines, that's what we were adapted to because all the plants in our natural environment were medicinal. Now, because our plants aren't medicinal that we're, we're eating, our, our, our domesticated foods, we actually have like a, a deficiency for medicine that's developed. And this has made us really dependent on the medical industry who basically refines plant drugs into pharmaceutical drugs or synthesizes plant drugs into pharmaceutical drugs and sells them to us to fill the void where our medicines lack. The problem is those medicines that they're selling us have really tremendous side effects we don't see in the plant. So what's going on is human beings are not letting food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Human beings are eating medicine devoid food and then taking excessively strong medicines. And this has created a lot of dysfunction in us. So this is a reason why this movement towards these foraged foods and these locally produced foods makes a lot of sense because they're foods that start to replenish us with the natural medicines that keep all our organ systems healthy and help us develop. And the real cutting-edge research says that these wild plants really strongly affect our gene expression and actually can shut off cancer genes and can turn on longevity genes. And that's really the direction I think a lot of us want to be going. Mm, absolutely. That was super great. So you spoke a little bit about the bitterness of um, a lot of those wild plants. And, um, and I would love to talk a little bit about taste and how, you know, in, in our 
culture and our society and and just in life you know it's one of our one of the few senses that we have you know so it's it is something that's important and I know it's something that you that you think is important too so I'd like to bring that into the conversation which is the kind of the next thing I wanted to ask you about which is the concept of celebration and when it comes to food I'd love your thoughts on that with kind of indigenous cultures especially at this time of year um with you know you know during this holiday season food is for so many people such a part of culture and celebration now has that been around for centuries people celebrating with food and are there ways to kind of be in this rewilding realm but still also enjoy food and enjoy the taste and I'd love your thoughts there well Not only has it been around for centuries, it's been around for tens of millennia. Um, we've been doing that all the way back. Now, one of the principles that I've identified um, in this idea of food rewilding is something I call feast and famine. Um, human beings have a unique trait that we don't see in the other primates who are our relatives. And um, this is this thing we call division of labor. Traditionally, uh, men and women do different roles when it comes to food procurement. Men typically, in most cultures, ancient cultures, will be those who hunt and also gather honey. Um, These more dangerous tasks usually fall to the men. The women typically gather, and that means they're gathering nuts, seeds, shoots, berries, roots, tubers, fruits, mushrooms, things like that. Um... Then they come back together and they share that bounty with one another. Now, one of the things that will happen is that men will be far more inconsistent with calorie procurement than women. So women will always be able to find shoots, nuts, berries, seeds, fruits, tubers, things like that. And they'll always bring those back. Men may go hunting and not find anything and come back with really nothing. And other times they might get something great and come back with a lot of food. So it it creates this cycle, a sine wave rhythmic pulse of times of food abundance and times of less food abundance. This is natural for us. When we look at our own culture, what we see is just always abundance. It's like the peak of the wave never drops into the trough. We never, we never stop having too much food. And additionally, our food is pretty nutrient poor, uh, typically, unless we're eating really high quality foods and kind of moving along that spectrum I talked about. Most of America is eating really nutrient poor food, which means they have to eat a lot in order to get enough of their nutrients they need. So they have to overfeed themselves and they're so sensory addicted to food that they tend to eat for almost um, the sake of like engorgement, (laughs) if you will, rather than taste. So I want to get to that piece in a second. Yeah, they're really trying to fill sort of a void in themselves, right? Or numb themselves, I guess, with food. Yep. Okay, so that said, um, I think that it's natural to go through cycles of, of feasting and famine. I recreate that in my own life all the time, and that looks like most of the day I'm eating very light. I'm snacking. I sort of I call it foraging. I'm just sort of foraging off of, of the snacks that keep me going, and I try to avoid lots of large meals. That said... There are other times, that's like the, the self-created famine, if you will. It's not Can a I ask famine, you about just, that, Daniel, just out yeah. of curiosity? Yes. So what do you, I, and I was going to get to that anyways, but I figure I'll just interject it right now. So that, that daytime foraging for you, what, is, what does that look like, that middle of the day? We'll get to your um, morning drinks and your evening meal, but like what is your, 
what is that foraging for you? The current, the current thing for me right now, and this is changing all the time. I'm constantly playing with things and experimenting. So this is a snapshot in time for me right at this moment as we're having this conversation. Cool. But I've been really into pemmican, and pemmican is a traditional native food, um, traditional indigenous food of North America, and it's basically an animal's tallow or body fat that's been sort of rendered down, mixed with dehydrated meat or jerky from that animal, and then mixed with berries to give a little sweetness and tartness and vitamin C to that. So um, that mixture called pemmican, it's about 55 or 60% fat and uh, the rest is uh, jerky and berries. That's a very traditional food human beings are quite adapted to and um, very, very satisfying. Um, keeps me going. It's very low in sugar, very high in saturated fat. And so that's something I'm really invested in right now. So, um, so that's sort of what I've been snacking on. So for human beings, though, gathering together, you know, was, human beings would, would basically traditionally sort of do their work throughout the day, kind of, you know, lightly eating here, there, and then sort of that foraging thing. Um, but then we gather together for communal meals. And uh, holidays or holy days are, of course, traditional throughout every culture. I mean, celebratory days where people come together to feast. And that's what we're coming up on now with sort of, for me, solstice. I know for a lot of people, Christmas, New Year's, these are times when we gather together. And it's pretty classic for people to gain weight during these times, right? People always talk about that. They overeat, they overindulge. And there's so many things to try. So this is the time of year. So I'm going to give a strategy here for people. Um, and it comes back to this thing you said about taste. Um, so wherever you are, whatever you're doing this holiday season, there's going to be a lot of food in front of you. Um, one of the things about our sense of taste is it tends to diminish as people age. Um, what you'll see very often are elderly folks or sort of, I think what used to be called elders, but often now I call olders because a lot of times our elders aren't fully matured humans. They're sort of grown up kids like a lot of us, but, but let's imagine we had elders. Um, typically they have lost a lot of the sensation of taste. And so they require very salty or very sweet food in order to sort of have the sensory experience they're looking for from food. However, I think there's a way to beat that. And the way to do it is to really go into your sense of taste. Um, think for a moment about people who do wine tastings, right? For a person who's never done a wine tasting, wine just sort of tastes like wine, right? A red wine tastes like red wine. I mean, after all, it's all made of the same stuff. It's all grapes. However, as somebody begins to develop their tasting palate, they're able to pick out thousands of taste notes. So even though they're drinking a fermented grape juice, they may able to, they be able to pick up on flavor notes like vanilla or chocolate or leather or tar or asphalt or slate or granite or all these things that aren't actually in there, but there's flavor notes of it. And that begins to sophisticate somebody's palate. You're sending subconscious messages to the brain that it needs to continue to pick apart flavors and identify individual taste components. Later on, as people develop, they may even be able to pick up terroir, which is the flavor of the soil of the region. That's amazing, right? So we can begin to do that when we eat feasts with people. And rather than eating to fill ourselves, we can eat for flavor recognition. So that means this holiday season, you could sort of put only a small amount of each thing you want to try on your plate. And you can take time with each bite to actually tease apart the flavors. This is going to slow down your eating process a lot. 
Um, it's also a fun conversation bit. So it's really great for other people. If you start to pick up flavors, hey, do you notice a hint of vanilla in that? <laughs> um, that slows everybody down and it gets people enjoying the food because what we tend to do is start inhaling food. And instead of judging it just on flavor and aroma, we tend to judge it on uh, sort of how much we filled our stomach sack. So this is a great way to slow it down and sort of move through our food uh, in a sensory way um, and, and, and really focus on sensation. Um, and while we do that, we develop our palate. And that's going to mean we breathe more, we chew more, we slow down more. Um, and we don't end up eating as much because there's a... Uh, our, our, our automatic shutoff, like the, the sense of, oh, I'm full, is a bit delayed, right? So what happens is we, we don't notice it at first. It's easy to go get a second serving of food before we feel that, oh, I'm, I was actually already full. And I, I'm sure a lot of people have experienced that at a, at a feast like we're talking about where you, you don't realize you're full until you've sat down and started eating the second plate. And then there's that like, oh, if I waited just a couple more minutes, I would have known. Um, I like too that if I do this, I know everybody else is going to eat two or three plates. So if I slow down, Mm -hmm. it takes me the same amount of time. So there's never that. uh, What we want to avoid at feasts this season is be creating awkwardness for people. We want to avoid creating awkwardness for people. People want to enjoy their food. They don't want to hear about whether it's bad for them or not. They don't yeah. want to hear about not that's not the time. You'll have no success then. If you really want to educate people you love around you about food, which I'm sure you do, um, you've got to choose the right moment for that. And when people are eating is usually always the wrong moment. So those are times where we want to be in total love, acceptance, and embrace. We want to focus on the love and the connection and the relationship, not on trying to judge or, or, or have power over anybody else. So this is a great time to just slow down, let people do what they're doing, and you just do what you're doing, not judging them thinking, oh, look how much they're eating, look how little I'm eating. It's not that. It's just slow down so you can feel good at the end. So you don't have to do the pants unbutton, fall asleep, take a nap. I used to always fall asleep after Thanksgiving. I remember that. I'd always pass out. <laughs> now I've learned. Um, and this, this thing I'm talking about, about using your sense of taste is a fantastic strategy to take uh, along in life with you so that your, fl- your ability to taste is always improving. And if it's always improving, then it's never going to be lost. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Mm, that advice was so good and so timely. Thank you for going there. Um, mm-hmm. So now before we wrap, I want to just get personal with you. You ready for it? Um, I'm hoping I'm ready for it. I'm feeling ready. (laughs) Cool, cool. Okay, so this is like my favorite question to ask anyone because I really think it gives us a nice glimpse into who they are and I'm dying to ask you. So could you walk us through your morning routine? Maybe like the first three things you do when you wake up. I'd love to hear about your, um, what you eat and drink during that time, like what, um, tonics you're making for yourself lately and just why that time in the morning is so important to how the rest of the, your day goes. For me, mornings are, are something that I've always dedicated to myself. Um, you know, I uh, have a career and I own a company and um, I have a staff and a, a lot of things that want my energy as early as I'm willing to give my energy to them. So it's important to me to make sure that I carve out mornings to be my own. Um, when I first get up in the morning, I like to, uh, first thing, get water. <laughs> I really, and I really like drinking lemonades it's kind of, or, or other kind of sour sweet beverages like that. So 
Um, that might look like squeeze, literally squeezing lemon. I love stevia and mixing that together in a 500 milliliters to a liter of water. And that's like my first thing in the morning. From there, I like a couple different things. Um, I like my sauna. So sometimes I'll turn my sauna on and or exercise at that point. Um, and sometimes, you know, but I'm, I'm <laughs> I could be far more consistent with it. Uh, meditation is another thing that I like at that time. But I like to do something that gets my body system really stimulated. So that could be the heat of the sauna. That could be the movement of the exercise. Something like that that gets my body sort of woken up. From there, I usually make some kind of a, a blended drink. Um, usually I'll start with a tea base that I'll make. So I like to keep uh, medicinal mushrooms boiling on my stove and uh, have a tea ready. And I'll put that in my blender, often with some kind of a stimulant. I'm really a, a big lover of, of plant drugs, I got to say. Um, so I like morning stimulants, which I rotate typically between um, several. My favorites currently would be coffee bean, uh, yerba mate, uh, cola nut, um, those are the, the guarana seeds, another one that I'll use. So I like to sort of play with something like that. And I'll blend in my uh, chia seeds. I'll blend in colostrum. I'll blend in uh, pine pollen. I'll, uh, let's see what else. I'll blend in uh, mesquite. Different things that I think really, you know, taste good, add nutritional profiles to my life that I really want to have, add fibers to my life that I want to have. I'll blend those up. And that drink will keep me going through most of the day. So I don't really get into eating until later in the afternoon on most days. Um, and so I give myself, you know, plenty of time. And also I, I'll add one more piece, um, my grooming. I'm, I'm a huge believer in grooming. I mean, if you look at wild animals and how much time they spend actually preening and grooming themselves, this isn't just about looking good or even just about feeling good. It's body maintenance. It's critical. It's crucial. It's crucial. So um, I'll put a lot of time into making sure that my body is sort of um, spick and span, ready for action. Um, and from there, that's when I'm really ready to jump into sort of the more work aspect of my life. Mm, I love that. Well, I think this might be a good time to discuss um, your products a little bit, which I definitely wanted to do. And um, you mentioned a lot of them in that in that morning tonic, which sounds delicious. So to, I'd like to kind of use myself as an example. You know, I'm a young girl, uh, I'm early 20s, and that I'm using myself because a lot of the people listening to this look like me, and that's kind of who my, my target audience is, although anybody who's listening I think will benefit from this, but what would be some of the key products from Surf Thrival that you would recommend to someone like me and um, to get started with if you had to pick a few? Hmm. Okay. Looking at it, I would say one of the first things I'd recommend is colostrum to people. It's um, the first food of all mammals. Colostrum um, from cows is a very powerful food, been researched extensively and shown time and time again to um, be a complete gut regenerator. Um, and I think that's really important because our generation and the generation before me, uh, your generation, um, we have grown up in an environment that is such that we are sort of um, suffering from a lot of digestive ailment. Most young people today actually come into the world with allergy issues 
and with gut issues. So something that can restore the gut tract is really important. In addition to that, it's a real beautifying food. It's a very complete food, nourishes us on every level, and really restores our immune system. So I'm big on that one because, again, human beings right now, a lot of immune problems. So that's one. Another one I want to add is we carry a product um, that's made from the growing tips of elk antler at a certain time of year. And this is an incredibly stimulating substance, very rich in collagen. So it contains six types of collagen, which I'm sure the people listening know. That's the stuff that keeps your skin plump and healthy and beautiful, keeps your body really juicy and supple. Um, But in addition, it contains a lot of hormonal substances. And when we consume this, it's very stimulating to the libido and it's very stimulating to the body's um, anabolic functions, our growth functions. Um, I want to recommend that actually to young people because it's very safe, very stimulating and gives us sort of a sense of something that modulates us a little bit because I think the younger generation right now is very used to substances that alter how they feel, right? We've grown up in a very drug-rich culture um, and everybody's very focused on looking good and feeling good and being youthful and being, having a high libido and feeling juicy and supple. So a supplement that can do that is really amazing, especially if it's one that's good for our health. So um, both colostrum and antler, I think are really safe for everybody. And they not only do they do all the things I talk about, but they restore and regenerate our bodies. The reason we carry them at survival is because we really believe in this idea of rewilding yourself. And so most of our bodies are sort of the, the end product of this long degenerative process that's happened in human domestication. So in addition to sort of reclaiming our mental and emotional sovereignty, we need to recru- re- reclaim our physical sovereignty. And one of the ways we do that is by restoring our bodies. And there are certain foods out there, like the ones I just mentioned, which actually stimulate and help us restore our body from the inside out. So things that contain growth factors like colostrum and like antler. Yeah. So I and I'll have all of these links below and, and I'll write this well, but I just wanna say quickly here that these products are so amazing and Daniel, I just wanna thank you too that you can be so sure that if there's water in a product, it's the best quality spring water. It's the best source ingredients. And then the best part is coming from people who just seem really down to earth and great. And the company just seems awesome. So I just want, I want to say that to people. Um, and then the next question that I have for you would be, so during the day, you gave us that awesome um, example of what you're, what you're eating now to kind of keep you fueled. But what are some... Um, more like on-the-go type snack things for just that keeping it light throughout the day, that foraging period or whatever, um, what would be some, some kind of snack more like things that you would recommend to people? I really like um, high-quality dried fruits and seeds. I think that can be really beneficial. But again, I really, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of like bulk bin type dried foods, like health food store bulk bin stuff. It's usually very rancid or degraded or it's got a lot of microbes growing on it. So I'll purchase those kind of things from high quality producers. Um, but you know, a high quality dried raisin, for example, or a high quality dried fruit is really nice. And then I also like high quality dried seeds, um, to from things as simple as maybe almonds to things as more like sort of exotic, like cacao bean. I really like cacao nib, things like that. So I, I also like to make kind of like a trail mix type thing. Nice. Um, I, but that said, like I said, I've been playing a lot with pemmicans, and I think that's really valuable too. Here's another one, actually. It might sound strange at first glance, 
But um, I have a really amazing source of um, grass-fed Jersey cow butter, local grass-fed Jersey cow butter from up here. And I literally eat that butter by the spoonful. Because essentially what it is, it's the, it's the essence of these, the grass that these cows ate. It's all of the concentrated fats. And with that, all the fats, uh, fat-soluble vitamins that that animal's um, put into that butter. So, um, so it's dark orange butter because of the vitamin A, right? And along with that, the vitamin D, the vitamin A, the vitamin K. So um, I literally consume that. That's like a fuel, pure saturated fat. That's like putting logs on a fire. It keeps my energy levels going without spiking my blood sugar. Nice. So that's local to you. Um, so where do you source? Where do you get the um, the thing that you're having now, and then also the the berries and the um, the dried fruit and seeds that you're finding? Is that something you can get online? Sure. So a couple companies I really like. I'm getting pemmican. Ooh, I hate to put this name out there. I feel like I might dry up my own source. Oh no. I get my I get my pemmican from a company called uh, U.S. Wellness, and they're great because they'll deliver to your door high quality grass fed animal foods. Um, fantastic. Um, I like companies like uh, Viva Pura and Ultimate Superfoods for a lot of my bulk ingredients. They're fantastic companies. They produce really really nice stuff. Um, and when it comes to butter, um, actually, Survival is going to very soon be carrying a, a glass bottles of ghee which is a shelf-stable, ancient butter preparation. Um, and we're going to have that very soon so that people will have a, a high-quality animal fat source like that that they can consume, um, like I said, by the spoonful, or they can blend it into drinks or put it onto food. Um, because I want to carry that because, for me, that's just been such a crucial food in my own journey. Mm, amazing. Can't wait for that. It's cool. So I just want to thank you one more time and then wrap up with some quick fire questions really quick. You ready for them? Let's do it. Okay. So just say like the first thing that comes to your mind. So what's your favorite color? Tough one. Blue. Favorite word? Apotheosis. Mm, What does that mean? It's when a human being is elevated to the status of a deity. Wow. I, I, my favorite word that I learned from you is pronoia, which <laughs> I adore. And I, my, my friend and I kind of say like cartoon world when it seems like that, when everything kind of is going your way. And, and that's what it means. And maybe you can define it better for everyone. But it's the, it's the belief that the universe is conspiring for your greater benefit. Mm, how beautiful is that, right? Oh, I love that so much. Okay, favorite Sir Thrival product? Oh, elk antler. Platinum. Favorite health ritual? Mm, hot springing. Favorite day of the week? Saturday. Favorite hour of the day? Two AM. Um if you were stranded on a island or something where you could only take five things with you, what would they be? Solar-powered flashlight, high-quality knife, fire source, my Vivram five fingers, a beautiful companion. Love it. Such a practical answer. Um, so what is your favorite vegetable? 
I'm stymied. Oh, <laughs> asparagus. Favorite fruit? Shizandra berry. Favorite way to relax? Uh, can't say too dirty. <laughs> what What are some tips for having a great night's sleep? Unplug your Wi-Fi, turn your cell phone off, turn all the lights off. Nice. Favorite meal you've eaten recently? Uh, wild lobster. What is something that you're doing in your life that you're afraid of, but you're challenging yourself to do anyways? Relax. Nice. What is your favorite book? Dune. Do you have a favorite song? No. <laughs> Um, and then you have really made it your goal and vision to really explain this concept of rewilding, rewilding to the world. So where would you like to see it in, say, 10 years? Where do you see the future of the work that you're doing? Um, I'd like it to be household. I'd like to be uh, speaking to groups of thousands of people, uh, tens of thousands of people, um, I'd like to see it on television. I'd like to see it in documentaries. I'd like to see it spreading through the mainstream and become as uh, well accepted as so many things that we take for granted in our everyday life. Mm, so good. So my last question for you is this. So the name of my blog and, and this podcast, as you know, is The Wellness Wonderland. So when I offer that term to you, what does living in a wellness wonderland mean for you? Oh, it's easy. Um, when, I've, when I'm really aligned with my truth and I take away any hindrances that I've put in between me and the magic of reality and the whole thing starts to flow and constant synchronicities and coincidences start happening that are aligned for my greater good and the world goes from feeling like something stark and cold to feeling like, like magic emanates from my fingertips and I can create anything that I d dare to dream, that's a wonderland. That's a wellness wonderland when it feels like pure natural magic and um, it's fun, the fun of creation. Mm, what an amazing way to end. Thank you so, so much, Daniel Vitalis, for being here and everyone else for listening. This has been truly amazing. Thank you. Mm, you're so welcome. Thanks for listening. You made it all the way to the end. I'll be back next week, but until then, let's stay inspired and keep this conversation going. So tweet at me, at Katie Dalebout, and our guest with your aha moments from this conversation. And like the Wellness Wonderland on Facebook, so we can all hang out there and discuss how inspired we are and how we'll apply it in our daily lives. And never miss another episode or post from me by signing up for email updates on thewellnesswonderland.com. See you back in Wonderland.